Okay, so this um this is the little bit of stuff podcast. I'm Dr. Nick. And um earlier in the week I published a set of questions or rather told people to send in their weird questions, uh things they would uh really, really love to ask a medical doctor, but um unable to ask the um doctors during their clinic visits. So um We'll be getting on to some of those questions that were sent to my WhatsApp. And yeah, we'll try to answer some of them. So um, the first question here says, um, I won't mention their names so that they feel very comfortable listening to this, uh, knowing that it's um, it's not going to go out there as, you know, who they are or what uh, they've asked me and things like that. So I'll just be reading the questions out and that will be all to it. So um, what causes anxiety? That was the first question. And um, yeah, so anxiety really has a lot of causes, um, but we prefer to talk about them in terms of risk factors. Um, not necessarily causes because the real causes for anxiety, like the real cause has um, really not been understood so well. And so we just have risk factors for these uh, causes. And um, uh, risk factors can you know, be diverse, can be environmental, can be uh, genetics, and, you know, and so on and so forth. So you can't really pin one thing down as one of the risk factors for, uh, as one cause of the um, anxiety. So if you have people who have other psychological disorders or psychiatric illnesses, like um, talk about depression, talk about um, an anxiety disorder, you may actually find these people also having, you know, anxieties every now and then. And so uh, you may you know, or may not class these people as set of the people that um, have anxiety. However, um, environmental, emotional causes like stress, did you just get in, in a, a new job? Uh, did you just get into a new environment? Um, even something as, um, as little as your neighbors being um, the terrorist types. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of things like that can cause anxiety. Um, other things like, um, you know, trauma. If you've had some emotional trauma, psychological trauma, um, you were in a military zone before where, you know, there are bombs today. There are, um, we talk about bullets flying everywhere. Like for me, who lived in Joss, you know, when I had um, to go to school there with all the bullets and all the killings and all that, you know, you may have some form of PTSD and then have anxiety disorder. So it, it, it happens for, you know, people like that. Well, as usual, um, females tend to have more anxiety than males, you know. <laughs> we have to mention you guys here. Females tend to have you know, anxiety more than males, you know. So um, that's just according to research. I, I I had nothing to do with that for real, you know. But I mean, females are more of our thinkers, you know. So uh, let's not also get into that. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of these factors can cause um, 
anxiety. And so um, it has also been found that um, if you have um, someone in your family who has had these anxiety disorders before, you may definitely uh, come up with anxiety issues, you know, and all that. So, yeah, uh, the causes are, you know, more classed as risk factors. However, the risk factors can be diverse, can be, you know, so many. But the, the, I think the common ones we see in our environment are, you know, more of PTSDs nowadays, uh, more of um, emotional, uh, the uncertainty, and, you know, the whole economic um, hardship bringing in some um, worries and, you know, things like that. You know, things like that uh, nowadays have actually, you know, given us more anxiety than, you know, than usual. So um, that that I think that's that's majorly it for anxiety. You you can you know clarify if you actually want to. And um, the second question here, uh, actually very interesting. How does uh, breastfeeding prevent pregnancy? Okay, so this was actually asked by nursing mother. And um, <laughs> I I think she wanted to know, I think she may want to know how soon she can get, you know, some other, um, um, how soon she can get pregnant. And um, yeah, so let's answer that. Um, the method of um, prevent, so yes, it, it does prevent uh, pregnancy. And um, although it's not a hundred percent sure that it will prevent, prevent pregnancy, but it has been talked about as a lactational um, amenorrhea. Amenorrhea just meaning that you don't see your periods uh, while you are uh, breastfeeding. But at the same time, um, there are criterias for it to work. It, it has to actually, you know, have some um, important things to, I mean, in place for it to work. And those things are, you know, majorly three. One of it is that you must nurse on demand. And that means four hourly during the day or um, at least six hourly during the night. So this child must um, breastfeed. Uh, I do not want to say suck. So <laughs> this child must breastfeed um, on demand, whenever the child wants it, not necessarily you creating a routine of your own whenever your child needs it. So four hours during the day, like four hourly during the day, six hourly, you know, at night. And you must practice exclusive uh, breastfeeding. That is nothing else, no supplementary foods, no, um, no supplementary foods, no, um, solid foods or anything to complement the feeds is just outright breastfeeding, nothing else. So that's the second uh, condition that must be met is just breastfeeding. Um, and then it has to be nursing on demand. The last one is, of course, the, the child must be uh, six months or less for, for it to work. And so, a lot of times you find mothers who create different schedules and then, you know, expect it to work. It may not work as much as you expect it. And then uh, for some, um, they have asked if pumping the breast 
for milk, especially if you're talking about uh, women who have to go to work, the working class women who leave their kids and have to get to work, it doesn't work if you have to pump, you know, your breast milk and then, you know, keep for the child later on. So it doesn't work. You have to actually <laughs> um, meet the other criteria of on-demand breastfeeding every four hours during the day, every six hours, you know, during the night. So um, changing a schedule may even increase your chances of, you know, ovulating and all that. So, I mean, how does it work? It just plays with the hormones um, that is uh, necessary for ovulating. And so if you can't ovulate, you you can't actually get pregnant. So that's just the little trick here. So you can't ovulate, then you can't, you can't get pregnant. So the whole complex is, I mean, the whole, you know, uh, explanation and everything is complex, but it, that's what it hinges on. The fact that it plays with your hormones you know, your central hormones and everything, and you don't ovulate. So that's part of the reason why you also will not see your menses. But if you start seeing your menses, then it means that it's possible that you're beginning to um, actually ovulate and get, um, yeah, actually ovulate and get pregnant. So uh, that's uh, that's what happens. So breastfeeding of the baby every four hours, uh, no supplements, and then you must uh, have not returned to menses. This child must be six months or less, and you will have um, lactation amenorrhea or amenorrhea, as it is called. Yeah. So um, we have another question, and that is. Is cancer curable? Yeah, a lot of people ask this question, and um, there are preventable cancers, maybe just one, and that is, um, I, I think that's the cervical cancer. But a cancer is curable once it has occurred, um, not necessarily. So I would answer no to this for now. Uh, we don't know what may happen tomorrow, but I would answer no for now. But there are three there are treatments that may cure you or achieve some remission, meaning that you can't get better uh, so much that you actually uh, can be declared cancer free, you know. But not necessarily use the word cure. Uh, a lot of times, you know, physicians and the clinicians, you know, shy away from using cure. Uh, they use remission and all that. But of course, you know, there are treatments that may declare you cancer-free, depending on the kind of cancer that you have. And um, yeah, so later on, uh, you may have a recurrence of this same cancer, even if even after you have been declared cancer-free. But of course, um, for now, there's no cure for cancer. And so we'll live with that. Okay, so moving on. So the next question, um, so she asked, th this is rather lengthy, but I'll try to move on to it. So she said, so I have this thing bothering me. Well, not that it bothers me like that, but I wonder at times, like, how do I know I can have a baby? I don't know if you understand that. I think most girls in my age circle has had one abortion or more, but I have never gotten pregnant before. Well, not that I want to, 
But sometimes I'm bothered. Like, what if I can't have a baby? Like, I have never actually had uh, protected sex with any of my ex, but I just don't get pregnant. <laughs> uh, okay, so I wonder what if I was married. Like, it's been five years since I have started this fornication. <laughs> Yeah, but is that how long I would have been waiting to get pregnant? Or can I just walk into any hospital and do a fertility test without questions since I am not married? Sometimes I am worried, but I actually don't want a baby yet, though. I hope you understand this question. So, yes, I I understand. Um, <laughs> um, rather funny. Uh, you don't want to get pregnant now, but you want to know if you can get pregnant and the whole five years of fornicating without getting pregnant. The, the question is, what if the problem is with the guys? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, what if the problem is actually with the guys? What, the, what if they were shooting blanks? It's possible. And um, yeah, but to answer your question directly, um, I'm sure, I'm sure your, your worries are valid. And there are, there are common signs um, of infertility in women. And... Um, not necessarily that these things I'm going to mention mean that you're infertile or you're going to be infertile. They're just things that you can take note of if you actually are worried that you may not actually have um, um, a fertile, um, uh, you may not actually be fertile. So um, let's go through a few things. And one is irregular periods, you know, things that deal with hormonal changes, things that deal with um, your hormones playing tricks, you know, on you um, actually may also be responsible for infertility in some cases. So irregular periods can be a signal if you, you know, want to take it serious. If you've been having these periods that are like... <laughs> Uh, this month you you don't have your periods next two months you have it next three months you don't have it you know and things like that it's actually a pointer to you know you having um, um some um, hormonal imbalances you know and things like that so yeah so um what if you have painful or heavy periods um that's also part of the issues if you have cramps uh, that are too painful well there's nothing like cramps that are too painful really but you know um, there are some cramps that may be worrisome you may want to actually uh, have it checked out because you may have endometriosis you know and things like that so you would um, you know um, have fertility issues if that is the case so you may want to get it checked out Another thing that you may want to get checked out is if you don't have periods at all. Uh, you've been going five months now, six months now, and you don't have a period. You have never um, had this happen before. It's just happening now. But it has been happening on and off, on and off for a very long time. Uh, you may want to get it checked out and see if there's any um, thing that you need to be worried about like right away. And then um, these things that I've mentioned are just, you know, like the tip of the iceberg. There are other features that you may see which may point you to hormonal imbalances, like if you have um, skin issues, like dermatological pro problems, if you have a reduced sex drive, 
um, if you have um, facial hair growth or, you know, hair on your chest, you have a male pattern of hair distribution, you know, and things like that, you may actually have, you know, to have you know that checked out. You have, you know, severe painful periods with that. You have um, weight gain, you know, and things like that. You have a male voice, you know, things that may, you know, want to get you worried about um, uh, what we call polycystic um, ovarian syndrome. Uh, you may, you know, want to actually get that checked out. And of course, if you have pain during sex, <laughs> um, yeah, I know a lot of people would, you know, flinch at this, but if you have pain during sex, it's it's possible, you know, that you have some hormonal issues too, you know. Um, endometriosis is also not far from the least, you know, and things like that. All these things may, you know, be a signal one way or the other to you having some, you know, fertility issues and you may want to get that checked out. So when you get it checked out, uh, what, what are the things that are, you know, the possible um, tests that you may be asked to do? Um, I'll just, you know, list them so that uh, we don't waste time with this. And some of those tests, you know, are an ultrasound. Uh, there are different kinds of ultrasound that will be done for this, um, either for ovarian function and things like that. You know, of course, all this is after, you know, taking a very good history and talking to you about, you know, the uh, possibility of having a, you know, even if it's a genetic disorder and, you know, and things like that, you may actually have, um, you know, that uh, checked out too. So you have some hormone blood tests, um, to check your, I think they call it hormonal profile. And then um, that will check if you have um, hormonal imbalances that may impair your um, getting pregnant. So uh, we've talked about ultrasound. We've talked about hormonal imbalance. I mean, hormonal profile. Uh, we also talk about um, what we call a hysterosarpingogram. Uh, which will check your fallopian tubes and see if they are, you know, blocked, if they are malpositioned, you know, and things like that. You know, things um, in this of this nature can actually cause um, some fertility issues. And so these are just, you know, a few things that you may need to do when you, you know, go to a fertility, a fertility clinic, so which is actually what you should do. You know, so you visit your doctor or you go to a fertility clinic and you tell them um, your worries, your concerns, and, you know, they'll get it checked out for you. It's um, easy um, for you to do that. No stigmatization, no um, excuses. You can actually, you know, have that checked out and, you know, uh, rid yourself of some worries. So, um, will this be the last question? Let's see. Okay, so um, let's take this one as the last one so that we don't uh, bore ourselves out so that um, we can have a part two of this actually. So she said, um, okay, my first question would be, is it possible to have, okay, is it possible to have 
infections before getting defiled. I think getting defiled here might mean um, before having sex. And the answer is yes. You don't have to actually have a, a sexually transmitted infection uh, before you... Um, yeah, before uh, you know, someone says um, it's an infection. It can be you know, non-sexually transmitted. And um, yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, vaginal infections, you know, have several causes and, you know, they, they may just, you know, be some uh, vaginal pH imbalances, you know, there may be some, um, some shift in the balance of the organisms in the, in the vagina. Uh, and this may actually give you some infection. So examples of these are the yeast infections, you know, the uh, bacterial infections, most commonly bacterial vaginosis, this one that gives the fishy odor, you know, um, very irritating fishy odor with um, some itching and all that. Um, in menopausal women, you may have some um, itching and some discharge too, which would also um, amount to um, look uh, a look-alike of infection. So, um, these things happen, you know, um, again, for women who douche and for women who actually wash with um, detergent or with antiseptic solutions or for women who have, you know, um, finger with unwashed hands. <laughs> I was refraining from saying things like that, but I mean, it's part of the things we must, you know, mention. So, um, yeah. Yeah, things like that can cause infection. And so, um, yeah, before you get defiled, uh, we don't want to say having sex here. But, of course, let's let's move on. So, secondly, I just got defiled recently. <laughs> let's, just say, let's just say she had sex recently, okay? So, I just got defiled recently. Uh, sorry, I just had sex recently. And there was no blood on the first meeting. So there was this doubt it created in my mind, and I know it will also be in my partner's mind. Uh, fortunately, I got little blood on the second trial. That was like months after. Okay, so the question is, is it normal? So is that normal? Yes, yes, that is definitely normal. So the, the, I think the real question here is, does a woman always bleed, you know, when she has sex for the first time? The answer is no, not always. You don't always have to bleed when you have sex the first time. It depends on, you know, several factors. Um, when a woman has penetrative, penetrative sex for the first time, um, there's something that covers the opening of the vagina. Known, we call it the hymen. And this hymen can stretch. It can get torn. Um, and it may not be there at all. So you may have, um, sex, but not necessarily tear the hymen. It may just stretch and, you know, you have this, um, feeling that there's no blood coming out and all that. It's totally normal. There are several types of hymen, you know, that a, a woman can have. And, you know, it, it, it can even get, you know, stretched or torn while playing sports, while riding a bicycle, 
um, while doing um, sports like um, high jump, long jump, you know, and things like that. So you don't necessarily have to have sex before the hymen even breaks in the first place. So um, when a woman has sex for the first time, it depends on the kind of hymen that this woman has. And this determines most of the time, not even always, most of the time, if this woman is going to have um, blood or not. So we're going to go through, you know, the several types of hymen that um, a woman can have just to be, you know, complete here. So there's a type we call the circumferential hymen, and that is the type that just sits around the vaginal opening um, without actually covering the whole of the of the opening. And, uh, you know, when you have this kind of hymen, it's possible for you to menstruate, to actually see your periods without um, any issues. So if this is the issue, um, the space in the middle uh, actually now determines, you know, how um, tight it will be. So the space in the middle can be big enough to, uh, you know, admit a smaller penis. And so it will just stretch and that's all. And nothing happen happens. No blood, nada. is is just um, there and nothing happens. There's a crescent type, just as the name implies, a half moon type, which, you know, just covers only a rim, you know, at one point or the other, from one point A to the, to the other. That again to me not bleed depending on the size of what is going in there. It may definitely just appear normal and no bleeding. Okay, so there's another type which we call the septate hymen, in which there's this you know round um, hymen uh, with a thin line in between. When when a penis goes into that it may actually be very difficult because there's a you know thin septate thin septation in between and you have um you may have some tearing off or some shearing off of um that hymen and have some bleeding or again <laughs> if you have something you know just you know as small as half of you know a partition of that going in, it may just stretch the you know the partition and and that's all. So again, I keep you know proving to you from each type of hymen to the other that you may not definitely have blood, you know, when you have sex for the first time. Another type is the imperforate hymen, which definitely, definitely, you know, would have caused an issue right from when you were a teenager because you would not see blood coming out in terms of um, um, in terms of um, what do you call it um, periods. So um, these patients um, or this person definitely would have some amenorrhea or what looks like amenorrhea in the fact that they won't have their periods, but at the same time, they were actually having their periods. It's just not coming out. So there are things we do for that. And this, you know, um, this kind of hymen, of course, if you try to penetrate it, you you definitely or most likely, you know, I would say most likely uh, for this, see some, you know, blood going in or go, coming out <laughs> really. 
Um, so there are different types. There are the cribiform types, you know, there's the micro perforate type and so on and so forth. So you, you, depending on the kind of hymen that you have, you may not have bleeding, you know, when you have sex for the first time and it's totally normal. So, uh, that would be, um, the answer to that, to that question. So it may stretch, it may tear and it may just, you know, remain the same. And, you know, it may even be at the second um, intercourse that it will, you know, even get turned off or shear off. And you have um, bleeding even at the second intercourse. So uh, that's what she asked. And um, yeah, so she said, lastly, I have never enjoyed sex at all. It's all pain. The four times I've had it. I'm even promising myself not to do it at all, if possible. <laughs> yeah, those are my questions for now. So, um, yeah, it's it's possible for you to have some periods of pain um, the first um, way around. And um, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you, depending on your pain threshold, I wouldn't be able to tell you when it will get better. It may be the 10th time. It may be the 12th time. And it may just be the fifth time or the next time you have it. So um, the thing is this, it's actually just learning how to accommodate what goes in there. And I, of course, I won't advise you on my show to, you know, um, go on trying to uh, fornicate, if I may use the word. So yeah, um, whatever it is, we don't judge. But at the same time, um, the truth of the matter is that it actually gets better. And the pain gets better, you know, with uh, several um, um, intercourses. So um, that is what I can tell you. Regarding the infection, that's, uh, I think she put the last question there. Regarding the infection, I have been treating it, but it resurfaces again and again. Please help me. I'm fed up. That will be all for now. So um, I would advise that you go see a doctor. A, go to you know a real hospital see a doctor they would order some tests for you and you will definitely uh, be treated based on what your test results say i think a lot of times uh, people get treated you know just uh, by giving them routine drugs you know they just go to a pharmacy and they believe that they're getting some treatment you know you actually need to go to see a doctor and get some proper treatment for uh, the infection that uh, you have so yeah um that is um that's what we'll be able to take for today this um episode has dragged for too long i think it's about oh wow it's 35 minutes now so um there'll be a part two to this uh i know a lot of you sent in questions and um, i i have them on my screen here and um we'll definitely do a part two uh in a few days or maybe tomorrow um, and then see where it will get us. So uh, we'll do a part two of this. More questions are still coming in on my WhatsApp. And um, yeah, this um, this episode or this series, this Ask um, Dr. Nick uh, series may actually drag for a while. But yeah, we'll get onto it. We'll try to help as much people as possible. Uh, we'll try to answer the questions as much as possible and we'll try to um, see how much of these problems we can get out there so that others can actually know uh, what um, to do 
when these situations come up and they get better information about their health they get quality information about their health and at the same time they are getting help um, wherever help lives so uh, that will be all for now thank you for joining me thank you Didi thank you Luina thank you yeah Busayo just joined um, thank you Shadi um, yeah thank you Aditola thank you everybody Biola uh, Jerry, thank you for coming on the show and um, definitely would publish. I know this this was um, a little bit impromptu, so I will publish um, the um, live session earlier for the next show so that, you know, more people can have a heads up and join. So once more, this is Dr. Nick, host of Little Bits of Stuff podcast, and we'll see next time. Please. Stay safe. Thank you. Hey.